Lord is risen. Amen. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Luke, chapter 24. Luke, chapter 24. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, please feel free to look on with the person next to you. Maybe they'll buy Easter brunch for you, or you can buy Easter brunch for them because they're sharing their Bible. Luke, chapter 24. It is not an overstatement to say that the eight verses that we're going to study this morning are the most significant section of historical literature that's ever been recorded. These eight verses are the most powerful words that mankind's ever heard. They're also controversial because they bring everyone to the point of eternal decision. They're the crucible for all belief, they're the crucible for all faith, they're the crucible for all conviction for every person who's ever lived. Is Jesus Christ alive this morning? Did he really defeat the grave? Did the 400 people who saw him alive after the resurrection have credibility? Has there ever been anybody that can reliably discredit their word? Has the body ever been found? Can anybody really prove this morning that he is not alive? Now, those are vitally important questions because whether or not Jesus Christ rose from the dead has undeniable eternal implications for all of mankind. If he remained dead, if this was some sort of elaborate hoax, and we'll look at that in a couple minutes, then all belief is up for grabs. Anything goes. You can believe whatever you want. And really, we might question whether there's even a God. If Jesus Christ is still dead, if somehow his body was shrouded and hidden and never found and and there was some kind of hoax, then everything is up for grabs. But if he is alive, every other idea of salvation fails. Every other idea of salvation, apart from Christ being the only way, the only truth, and the only life, and no one coming to the Father but through him, Every other idea is worthless. That's what hangs on this text. Now, rising from the grave would be significant enough on its own, but it is what Jesus Christ accomplished in rising from the grave that calls us to belief and trust. His resurrection puts an end to what binds every single one of us. I'll explain that in a minute. And his resurrection creates a new beginning. The fact that Jesus Christ is alive opens up the opportunity for us to be freed from that bondage forever. And nothing else in the world creates that kind of eternal reality. No one else who has ever lived or claimed to be something other than normal or claimed to have some word from God or claimed to even be God can can create this type of spiritual possibility for mankind. And in these eight verses that we're going to look at this morning, there's one phrase that stands out because it's what everything hangs on. And it calls to question, is Jesus Christ truly the Savior? Is he really the one who saves mankind? Let's look at the text. Chapter 24, the book of Luke, verse 1. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices which they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. 
While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling clothing. And as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but he is risen. Remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee, saying that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and the third day rise again. And they remembered his words. Now, we can't fathom the emotional trauma and the complete despair that the disciples felt from the moment they watched Christ give up his spirit to this moment. Somehow they had not listened to, somehow they had not heard, somehow they had not accepted Jesus' words in Galilee in Luke chapter 9 when he specifically said to them, here's what's going to happen. We're going to go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed, I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I am going to rise again. Somehow they missed all the symbolism of the Passover meal that we celebrated Friday night, the Lord's Supper, where he said, this is my body, which is given for you. This is my blood, which is shed for you for the remission of sins. This is what's going on. And the disciples are debating who's the greatest and who's going to betray him and what's happening and what's to eat and whether it's too spicy. I mean, there's so many things going on in their minds. And Jesus is saying to them, here's what's happening. Now, as the events start to play out, as it starts to happen, like he had said, you would think at some point they would have put it all together and, and they would have said, hey, wait a second, he's going to rise again. Now, it's easy for us 2,000 years later to say that and to say, well, if I had been there, I would have understood. But, but what was happening here is they're still thinking of themselves. They still are seeing Jesus with finite minds. They still don't quite get the spiritual implications of his life and death. All they can see when they see him die is the grave. All their minds can get is that it is done. It's finished. He lost It's all ruined. And once the cross is done, they feel hopeless. They go to the upper room, they kind of look at each other, and they don't really know what to do next. If they had just remembered his words, they would have been excited and waiting and expectant and watching their watches. When is the third day again? How soon can we get down to that tomb? Because he's going to rise. but it wasn't anywhere in their thoughts. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe where you are today is you hear what the Word of God says, and you see Christians celebrating, and you see the choir singing, He reigns forevermore, and and you see Easter, and you see the resurrection, but it still kind of seems far-fetched to you. It's a nice concept, and, and it would totally validate Jesus if it was true, But people just don't rise from the grave. I mean, let's be serious here. And you're struggling to kind of reconcile it in your mind. Jesus is interesting to you, and maybe you're not quite sure what to do with him, but you haven't quite accepted the resurrection. And you know that if you did accept it, you'd have to respond with faith. You know that if Jesus really did defeat sin and death, then he has to be the Savior. If Jesus is alive, it changes everything. Now, it's not unusual to be a little bit skeptical. In fact, it's interesting to note 
that after three years of walking with Jesus and hearing his teaching and watching him do miracles and say what he said and even raise a widow's son from the dead and even raise Lazarus from the dead, and even after they confessed, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, you're the anointed one, you're the Messiah, you're the Savior, that even after all that, when they watch Jesus die on the cross, they lose hope. That's why when the scene opens in verse 1, even before it's daylight, it's still dark out. You would think they'd be sitting on the hill looking at the Roman soldiers going, this is going to be fun. Watch, Watch this. But they weren't there. And we just have these ladies that are coming, and they're not hopeful because they're carrying spices. They're hoping somehow they'll get in the tomb, which has been sealed with a Roman seal, They have no really recourse to be able to ask to get in, but they're hoping maybe if they come with spices and and kind of are sad that that maybe the Romans will relent and let them in there and continue the embalming process. But, But there's so much sadness and shock and fear when they see the tomb rolled, the stone rolled away, because there's there's no expectation of his resurrection. So when they see the tomb rolled, the stone rolled away. They don't say, oh, it finally happened. There's there's no sense of joy. And then when they go in, the guards aren't there. What's going on? Why is the stone rolled away? And they go in and they look for where Jesus' body should be, and they don't find him. They all should have been waiting. But even when the women go in and they see the angels, and the angels say, he's not here. He's risen, just like he said he would. Remember back in Galilee when he told you this? Mm, think, Remember? And they go back and tell the others. And instead of rejoicing and praising and lifting their hands and shouting hallelujah, they're like, "Eh, you you ladies are crazy. And only Peter and John run to the tomb. So skepticism is, is natural. But don't you think that that question that the angels asked them was seared into their hearts? Why do you seek the living one among the dead? Not just why do you seek Jesus or why do you seek the one who rose from the grave? They give him a more specific, exclusive title. They say he is the living one. That's an eternal term. It has no beginning and no end. It means that he is the one who has always been and always will be. He is the living one. There's no end. Now, that's a strong statement about Jesus' essential nature as God, and the nature of the question reinforces that he's Lord. But notice back in the text, look at it, there's an extra layer to it. Not only that he's the living one, but that as God in flesh, he's actually alive. He's defeated the grave. His dead body isn't dead anymore. It's not in the tomb anymore. That's why when they say he is not here, he is risen, In the parallel passage of Matthew, they also say, come and see the place where he was laying. He's not there anymore. Come on, ladies, come in. Look at it. There's nothing there. He's gone. The inference here is obvious. Jesus had not only defeated the grave, but by doing so, he had defeated sin. How do we know that? Because he had all of our sins on us when he died. So if he rose again, all those sins were defeated. 
he defeated hell because if sin is beaten, then hell has no power and redemption is being offered. Now, we're going to develop that further in a minute. Before we get there, let's deal with the, with the other layers of skepticism and doubt that most people would have about this claim that Jesus is alive. Because again, even the disciples had their doubts. So the most obvious question that needs to be answered, really the only question that matters is if Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, then where is his body? If Jesus Christ did not rise from the grave, then where is his body? Interestingly, the proof of the resurrection is not on those of us who believe in Christ. The proof of the resurrection is on those who don't believe. So let's analyze how this could have been disproven. First of all, let's realize that this passage is written by a medical doctor. And a medical doctor would be inclined to say, I don't believe you can come back from the dead. So you would think there would be a healthy dose of skepticism from Dr. Luke, who would have been prejudiced against such an outlandish claim. And yet here he is writing it, saying, I understand this because we've witnessed it, and it's true. Then there's also a number of evidences that we have to reconcile that, that would have to be convincingly refuted. Why did the soldiers take a bribe? Why did the soldiers take money, which history records, in order to be quiet? A Roman soldier was never quiet of anything. They were the finest soldiers on the face of the earth. They were as tough as you could possibly get. Why did they take a bribe to say that what happened wasn't real? And what about the testimony of the hundreds of people who saw him? What about the sudden boldness of the disciples who, when Jesus was betrayed, had run away? and who had denied him publicly. Why all of a sudden are they suddenly bold, especially in Acts 4, when their lives are threatened? Why do they say, we don't care what you do to us, we are not going to stop talking about Jesus' resurrection? Where did they get that boldness? Why have so many millions of people throughout the years willingly given their lives completely to these eight verses? Some of them literally being martyred for their faith. Why are we here this morning? We would not be sitting in this building this morning if it wasn't for the resurrection. We'd have no reason to meet. But here's the one that really gets me. Here's the one that really proves it in a very convincing way. If it was suspected that Jesus' body had been hidden by the disciples, then why weren't the Romans and the Jews conducting the most pervasive, door-to-door, -door, extensive search possible to invalidate the news. When Jesus was born, Herod said, you kill every child, every male child, under two, so we cover all our bases. If this miraculous, wonderful event wasn't real, and there was some suspicion that the disciples, who were just a bunch of fishermen and tax collectors, they were nobodies. They clearly, in Luke 24, had no personal power. They're not anticipating the resurrection. They have nothing to do to fight against the Romans and the Jews. Don't you think if the Romans and the Jews suspected that this was not real, that they would have brought the disciples in, say, what did you do with the body, and then gone house to house, grave to grave, until they found Jesus? 
Now, the Romans had everything to lose about this. Because as the most powerful nation on the earth, they would have been mocked for their inability to keep a dead body secure. And nobody mocked the Romans. So they had a deeply vested interest in making an example of the disciples. The Jews would have been discredited and blamed for putting Messiah to death because if he rose again, he has to be Messiah. He has to be the Savior because that's what had been prophesied about him. So so they're going to be completely discredited. They're going to be exposed as frauds. They have a deep-seated interest in making an example of the disciples. And yet, isn't it fascinating that we have never read any report of a search? In all the articles you've ever seen about Jesus Christ, Time, Newsweek, USA Today, anything that's written about Jesus, have you ever seen it said that there was a search party that looked for the body and accused the disciples? There is not any record in history that I am aware of that anyone even looked for his body. There is absolutely no record of a trial where the disciples were accused of theft of a corpse and creating a public nuisance and perpetuating a lie. When Jesus was betrayed, he was tried, sentenced, and put to death within about 15 hours. Don't you think they would have brought the disciples in and said, you guys are on trial. You stole a corpse. That's an offense against the law. You guys are perpetuating a lie. You're creating a public nuisance. You're stirring up people. You're telling people that Jesus is alive. So we're going to put you on trial. In fact, it's interesting because at Pentecost, 50 days later, when they, when they get the Holy Spirit and Peter stands up to speak, there's nobody that stands up and shouts and accusations at the disciples. When Peter and John are arrested in, John, in Acts chapter 4, and, and the religious leaders say, what are you doing? You can't talk anymore. And they say, you guys, you religious leaders, you scribes and Pharisees, you put Jesus to death. It's on your hands. They don't say, well, you guys stole the body. Well, you guys lied. You guys have perpetuated hope. There's none of that. In fact, it says in Acts 4 that they were completely intimidated by the power of the disciples, and they saw that they had been with Jesus. You ever wondered why all of those things are true? I absolutely believe it's because everyone knew the resurrection was real. They couldn't produce a body because Jesus was alive. And he appeared to 400 people and more over the course of a month and a half. Now, many people even today will say, well, that's a farce. But if it's a farce, why didn't those who are most interested in the outcome argue about it then? Why didn't those who had put him to death say, wait a minute, he is still dead. Here's the corpse. Why why didn't that happen? See, the bottom line is that a lack of evidence to the contrary becomes persuasive evidence of proof. Where there is an absence of evidence, there is a preponderance of truth. If you can't produce a body and you can't produce a corpse, and you can't say the disciples lied, and you can't prove it, then what has to be true? The Lord is risen. The Lord is risen. And then, go back to the text, we have the word of the angels. Why do you seek the living one 
among the dead. He's not here. He's risen. Now, in those two statements, we have the complete explanation of what Christ secured for all mankind. Listen carefully now. By rising from the grave, he has put an end to sin and death and condemnation for all who believe and trust in him. And he has provided new life to all who believe and trust in him. Romans 7.14 says that because of sin, every single one of us is in eternal bondage. Every one of us is sentenced to hell as a payment for our rebellion against God and our sin. So for anyone to be freed from that, there are four eternal restrictions that have to be paid for and canceled out and removed. Let me say that again in a different way. We are all under the sentence of death. And for us to be relieved from that death, payment has to be made. Now, turn over for a minute to Romans chapter 8. And let's see, just in four verses here, what Christ's resurrection did to deal with those four restrictions. And I'll explain what they are in a minute. There are four things that have to be satisfied, four levels of bondage that have to be removed for us to live forever as redeemed people. So let's see what Paul writes here in Romans chapter 8. Actually, we're going to read eight verses. Start in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, in other words, we couldn't obey it, so it couldn't justify us. What it couldn't do, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who did not walk, walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Drop down to verse 8. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. However, you are not in the flesh. Speaking to believers now, those who trust Christ, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body's dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, here's our hope, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Holy Spirit who dwells in you. Now, the passage makes clear, even though that's deep stuff, the passage makes it clear that through his resurrection, Jesus Christ did three things. He put an end to sin's control. He put an end to death's control. And in doing that, he put an end to the eternal condemnation for those who trust him. Three of the four, just in these verses. By his death, by his resurrection, he put an end to sin, he put an end to death, and he put an end to condemnation. Now, if you look back at verse 2, it says we are set free when we believe from the judgment and penalty that sin carries because what the law couldn't do because we were so miserable at obeying it, Christ then accomplished through his resurrection. Every single person who has ever drawn breath, who has ever lived, is a member of an exclusive club. It's called the walking dead. 
black, white, male, female, rich, poor, southern, northern, uh, blue collar, white collar, it doesn't make a bit of difference. Every single one of us is condemned from the moment we take our first breath because we are born with a sin nature. Paul talks about it in chapter 6. He says, as sin came in through Adam, every person is infected by it. And Romans 6.23 says the eternal implication of that is death. Not just at the end of my life, I die, my body ceases to live. He's talking spiritual death. We're infected by sin, it corrupts our nature, and we have absolutely no hope because there's no release from that bondage. Oh, but wait, Romans 6.23b, the wages of sin is death, tell it with me if you know it, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God be praised this morning for that. The gift of God is eternal life through Christ. The fact that he is Savior and Lord comes by virtue of the fact that he defeated the grave, which means he defeated sin and he defeated death and he defeated condemnation. And then in Colossians 2, it says that he paid the fourth restriction. He paid the certificate of death, of debt, excuse me. Romans 3, Hebrews 2, 1 John 1, 1 John 4. They all say that he was our propitiation. It's a strange word that we never use. What does it mean? It means satisfaction of the dead. It means payment. It means that sin required something to get us free. It required, it required sacrifice. It required blood being shed. It required the death of the substitute. Now, that payment means nothing. Listen now, that payment means nothing if he is still dead. He's just another guy that died, that claimed to be something that he wasn't. And the debt, the certificate of debt can't be torn up because he's not worthy of it. But if he rose from the grave, which he did, then he can take that payment and go, done. I've defeated sin. I've defeated death, I've taken away the condemnation, and any measure of debt that you still owe, I've erased it. I bought it for you. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why are you looking for the living one? He doesn't have to stay here. He defeated him. He doesn't have to hang around with the other corpses that are around here. Because he's conquered death. He's defeated its penalty. He's paid the price. Listen to what Colossians says about him. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, when he disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. That display, that public display of victory is what we celebrate this morning and what we see in Luke 24. It's the empty tomb. And we love the image of the cross, and we should because it's where our sin was put. We love the image of the cross. In fact, Friday night, the choir sang, Oh, the cross where Jesus died. We, we sang, Oh, the wonderful cross. It seems an oxymoron because the cross was a horrific thing. But we know 
That's where my sins were put. But listen, I think the empty tomb gets, gets short shrift. Because the cross doesn't matter unless the tomb's empty. So somebody this week, right, oh, the empty tomb. I want to hear that, okay? We'll sing it. The empty tomb means that Jesus didn't just defeat the grave. It goes much deeper. It means that he defeated sin and death resoundingly and unquestionably and forever defeated it. And it is stripped of its power to keep us in bondage. And eternal death no longer has a claim on us because we are his. But listen, that only happens if you trust him as your savior. It is a gift of God not of works. It has to be received. You have to accept it. He says, when you receive it, I will give you the power to become the sons of God, but I am not going to force it on you. I proved my worth. I showed my complete adequacy. I showed you your complete inadequacy. You have a need for me, so I am waiting for you to confess your sins and turn from evil and put your trust in me. And when you do, I will save you forever. But he's not going to just accept us by proxy and say, oh, it's all right, you're cool. I'm going to save everybody. I'm just kidding about that, you know, sin thing. Forget all that stuff that I said. I'll save everybody. It's okay. In the end, it'll be good. Mm -mm. There's a penalty for sin. That's why we have a cross. There's a price that has to be paid. Now, I'm going to talk for just a couple of minutes, but let me say right now, If you want to know more about that or what it means to give your life to Christ or to be saved by God's love and God's grace, I would love to talk to you after the service. You can talk to Randy. You can talk to an usher. You can talk to a choir member. You can talk to the person next to you and say, I want to know more. And if they don't know exactly what to tell you, they'll come and find us. But do not leave this place today without knowing Christ. What a day to give your life to Christ. The day of his resurrection. Remember, you and I are eternal creatures. This isn't all there is. Wouldn't that stink? This is it. I'm over halfway done. This is it. This this is all there is. This is just, this is me. The soul that's inside me just dies. It's over with. End of story. No. No. We're eternal creatures. The soul of every person who has already died, listen, lives somewhere today. Either they are separated from God or they are in his presence forever. And where they are and where you and I will ultimately be completely depends not on whether we went to church, not on whether we said the right prayers, not on whether we gave the right amount, not on whether we did good works or more good or bad where every one of us spends eternity rests solely on what we believe in our hearts and whether we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's what it rests on. It depends on what you today believe about his resurrection. Is he alive? Did he defeat sin and death forever? Can he forgive us? Can he purchase us from sin? Can he secure us forever, eternally? I want to tell you this morning, he is alive. 
And you have to do something with that. What he accomplished on the cross and the tomb is what he came to do. And if we believe that and trust in him as our savior, we will spend eternity with him. If we choose to reject it, we will not. It is that simple. And he is calling you and me to salvation. Our works will never, ever be sufficient. No one can hold up the resume and go, I'm in. I'm good. Look at my essay. It's phenomenal. The record of good works that I have done, you really should be impressed. You want to see it? All those things I've done, man, I've gone to church. And I wore nice clothes. I dressed up. Can you believe it? I never dressed I dressed up for church. And I put some money in the offering plate. And I, and I sang, sang along this morning. And I brought my Bible. Listen, those are fantastic things. Do that. That's not getting you to heaven. The only thing that gets us to heaven, the only thing that satisfies his perfect holiness is putting our trust in Christ. It's him who turns sorrow into hope. And if I can rephrase the word of the angels for a second, why do you live as one who is dead when you can live as one who lives? Why would we bother with that? Now let's, let's close, let's finish, but I want to reinforce one truth. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, just for a second. Thank you for listening so well. So good to have you today. If you are visiting, we're just really, really thrilled that you're here. Thank you for coming. Not only is Jesus' resurrection put an end to sin and death and condemnation and the debt, but on the other side, he's now started a new work in those who believe. Because of Christ, all who are dead can become the living. Because he's the living one, we can now become living ones too. Believers are the living. Now, there's a two-part transaction here. The first part is removing sin and its penalty. The second part is recreating us to be living ones alive because of Christ. Now, look at what Ephesians 2 said, because there's a powerful word here that reminds us just how profound and far-reaching this transaction is, both in the complete change of our spiritual nature and also the extent to, to how much Christ has changed our lives for eternity. We need to read all ten verses here, okay? Stay with me. Ephesians 2.1. And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, that's the devil, of the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience. It's a spirit of rebellion and sin. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging in the desires of our flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as rest. Stop there and look at me for a second. Christians are not saying, if you're a non-Christian this morning, Christians are not saying we're better than you. We're not saying we're free and we've never sinned. We are confessing what Paul confesses right there in verse 3. We have been like that too. We know what it is to lust. We know what it is to commit murder in our hearts. We know what it is to follow the desires of the flesh and of the mind and to be children of wrath. In fact, even as believers who are redeemed, we still struggle with it. So please understand me this morning. This is not a pointing finger. Paul is trying to help us to understand what's going on here. Now look at verse 4. But God, oh, in contrast to all this, God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, 
Even when we were dead in transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We have no business being there, but he did it. So that in the ages to come, verse 7, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let's read these last three verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. What's Paul saying? Once we were dead, once we were controlled by sin, once we served the devil, once we lived by the flesh, we were disobedient and angry and hostile toward God. Listen now. But His love is so great and His mercy is so powerful and Christ's resurrection is so sufficient That when we trust in Him by faith, He starts a new work. We're made alive through Christ. We're raised up with Him. We experience His eternal kindness. And we live as His new creation. And those who trust in Christ look nothing like they did before. How does that happen? It happens because the tomb is empty. On four separate occasions, I have been blessed to stand in that empty tomb that's on the front of your bulletin. It's about a 100 yards from Golgotha, the place of the skull. In fact, that sign you see on the front of the uh, uh, bulletin, my grandparents gave that sign. The door to that tomb never closes. It doesn't have a lock on it. It perpetually remains open. And I have stood there four times, and I can tell you today that it is empty. It is empty. That would be the easiest thing in the world to disprove today. They could take a camera crew, they could go to Jerusalem, they could walk into the garden, they could take a camera and look in the tomb, and if Jesus Christ was still dead, there would be a rotting corpse wrapped in cloths. But the tomb is empty. But listen, don't take my word for it. Listen to an eyewitness. Peter and the other disciple, John speaking of himself, went forth and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together and the other disciple ran head faster than Peter. I've always loved that sentence. And they came to the tomb first and stooping and looking in, the disciples, John saying, this is me. I saw the linen wrappings lying there, but I didn't go in. And Simon Peter also came following me and entering the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, that's me. So I, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered and I saw and believed. The word believe there means to be confidently persuaded that it's true. John says, I got there and I kind of looked in. I didn't know what to find. And Peter comes barreling up and he goes right in and he sees it. And the linen wrappings are laying there. And the cloth that was around Jesus' head is folded neatly, separate from the linen wrappings. 
And then I got the courage and I walked in. And when I saw it, I was confidently persuaded he is risen. And that changed everything. Are you that confident this morning? Do you know that truth? Have you received the gift of God through Christ? Let me tell you this morning, one more time, with full assurance. The Lord is risen. He's alive. Hallelujah. Let's thank Him and praise Him. Lord, we praise You this morning. Without question, without reservation, without doubt, You are alive. And that means everything. That means that sin is defeated and death is defeated and condemnation is defeated and that certificate of debt is paid. And you say, as many as receive you, you will give the power to become the sons of God even to them that believe on your name. That if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Lord, as one who has done that. I praise you this morning for your salvation. Lord, if there is anyone here this morning that does not know you, that has not received your gift, I pray right now in their heart that they would cry out to you and say, Lord, I get it. I'm a sinner. I'm a failure. I'm unworthy. But you died and rose again for me, and I receive it. Lord, do not allow the devil any room right now. But change and touch hearts. Lord, even for those of us that have been saved decades, lift our hearts now. Stir us. Inspire us. Give us a new, fresh passion for you because you are alive. And Lord, that doesn't stop today just because today is the resurrection day. Every day of our lives as living proof of your resurrection. We thank you, we praise you, we love you, we believe Jesus is alive. We praise you and pray in his name. Amen.